Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, April 6, 2022, and today we're coming to you from the ACRO Conference in Portland, Oregon, where I've spent the last three days uh, learning from the association and its uh, international educators who have attended. Uh, it's a larger conference for about two to 3,000 uh, individuals, um, and uh, first time uh, they've been meeting in person in the last two years. Uh, it's uh, that'll be as you'll see in the themes of today's uh, topics we'll be covering uh, about in-person conferences and uh, conferences that you'll be attending this year. We're going to take a look at some of the differences that we've seen in the last uh, last couple of months, the last two conferences that uh, I've attended uh, in December and now April. And we'll share with uh, with the audience today uh, what our thoughts are on where, how much uh, closer we are to a normal, a new normal of uh, in-person meetings. So as we do each week, uh, we take three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days uh, to go a little bit more in depth and share our thoughts on how these topics are really um, uh, manifesting themselves in our work and today obviously is no different, just a little bit different setting for the conversation. So let's get right into our first question of the day. I'll run through each of them first and share a couple of insights uh, as we've uh, gone through the last few days here in Portland. First up, uh, what are in-person conferences like today? Uh, second, do you have an international strategic plan? And third, what conferences will you be attending this coming year? And we all know that uh, the last two years have not been easy uh, as the pandemic has come and gone and come again and is in retreats perhaps in some places and still uh, still case, new cases appearing every day and others. And thoughts I wanted to share today on these topics are uh, related to why I was here in, uh, in Nevada, uh, excuse me, in Portland, uh, Talking, uh, I had a session yesterday on uh, starting from square one, internationalization efforts at UNLV, presented with my uh, old friend and colleague, uh, Steve McKellips, uh, who's a AVP at uh, basically Chief Enrollment Officer at UNLV. And uh, our session covered the, the, uh, the last year at UNLV when they had made the decision to internationalize. I'll talk more about that in response to the second question of the day. But in terms of what are in-person conferences like now, uh, we do uh, have, uh, have had in-person conferences since late fall uh, with um, a couple, uh, including AirSea uh, in Miami in December, in early December. And we've seen a couple of uh, other beyond international education, uh, the return to in-person conferences has been welcomed by many uh, in a lot, a lot of different uh, places around the United States. Uh, they are beginning to look different. Uh, what I attended in December is different than what it is today. Uh, back in December, we had to uh, go through a vetting, not vetting, vetting process, but we had to uh, either have a negative COVID test a, a day before, two days before the conference, or have uploaded documentation of vaccination. So that's probably the wrinkle that will stay with us for a bit uh, in, in terms of in-person conferences. Uh, at that conference in Miami, even though it was in uh, Miami, in Florida, at an, in a state that has fairly relaxed COVID regulations, 
the conference itself decided to, and even I think don't know if it was the hotel as well, but for all inside events, uh, masks had to be worn. Uh, speakers could ask permission to not have their masks on when they were presenting, but uh, for the most part, it was a masked conference and one that uh, you had to document uh, vaccination or negative COVID tests in order to attend. So fast forward four months to April, early April 2022, and uh, with the ACRO conference here in Portland, uh, Portland is, uh, has recently relaxed uh, their, uh, their mask requirements. In fact, uh, signs are still up all over, the, all over the city and in most restaurants uh, that masks are required, but they're not enforced at all. Uh, in fact, uh, the conference itself had indicated that masks were to be worn uh, in the lead up to to the event. Though I think it's a very things have been very fluid in regards to in-person conferences. So I see uh, certainly the uh, when I came in the doors to register on um, on Monday uh, there were or Sunday excuse me there were uh, ha less than half people were wearing masks. Certainly wasn't. Uh, being enforced in any way. Um, so I think it was just a level of comfort thing for individuals. Uh, there was no real communication in the, in the days leading up to the conference that they were no, masks were no longer going to be optional. So I had my supply of uh, three or four masks in my bag that I could have pulled out. I had one in my pocket that was ready to put on. But uh, the general gist of it was that, um, no, you don't have to wear a mask. Uh, we still, uh, we did the, the process, uh, we did have a vaccination and or negative COVID test uh, requirements uh, to attend. That was, that was very, made clear from the beginning. Uh, so in the previous uh, conference back in December, we had to upload our documents uh, and then they were vetted and then erased once the checkbox had been put next to our name for registration. But here uh, there was an actual app that prior to the conference we'd have to upload our documents to and then we'd have a digital badge that we would show when we checked in to verify that we had uh, uploaded our vaccination records and we were uh, good to go. Uh, that is probably uh, was through an app called Clear uh, that, uh, that we have on our phones that uh, pr presents the opportunity to show uh, your status, uh, kind of the digital badge, so some versions of these and here's mine. I'll point it up to the camera, set a digital badge like that, show the QR code. They, they quickly scanned it, and I was good to go for the rest of the conference. So very simple process, but it worked. Uh, and uh, no complaints really from anyone that I've uh, heard of. Most were eager to uh, be meeting back in person. I think that's still going to be the general theme of uh, when as in-person conferences resume. I know uh, this particular conference is almost exclusively domestic individuals. There's a couple of Education USA advisors that had come. Uh, two of the three of the REACs also uh, were in attendance at this conference uh, from different parts of the, of the world. But uh, they, uh, international travel is still uh, is not is is much more complicated than domestic because they do have to show uh, vaccination and negative COVID test results before they can fly within two days. And that's, that's a, a new reality. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Uh, maybe the testing requirement would, might go away if uh, one thinks of settled down enough. But uh, at this point, that is uh, the vaccine, proof of vaccination is required in order to travel internationally. So what does that mean for international conferences coming up? And we'll talk more about that with our third question of the day. 
but I did want to talk about our question number two. And this is a question that um, I, when I'm working with college and university clients is number one or two on the list of reasons why we're having a conversation. Why are, why are you interested in, in having, uh, have, engaging with me as uh, part of uh, some international uh, education, international recruitment, international enrollment uh, needs that you have on campus? So I, I always start with, do you have an, a strategic plan? Uh, not only uh, at the university level, uh, if and if you do, does it include international uh, in any mention whatsoever? Not always the case. In fact, I would say probably less than half of uh, university plans mention international specifically in strategic planning at the university level. They may have a recruitment plan uh, that might be a year-to-year -year thing, but rarely are those strategic. And that's, that's always where I start my conversations, is just to get a sense of how sophisticated uh, that institution's international office is, that institution as a whole, are in terms of their uh, vision for international. Uh, this is, uh, and I, I have a lot of colleagues who I uh, respect immensely in the field who have worked on the institutional side for years, and uh, they do tend to go year to year uh, with um, their planning for recruitment in particular. Uh, some more sophisticated offices will have uh, country-level plans that uh, because of their, they perhaps are, are fairly evolved in terms of their international student populations, so they are, uh, have very significant uh, diversification uh, plans in place to broaden the scope of where they're bringing students in beyond China. Uh, and that is takes some care and takes some a real focus, and not every institution can do that and give it the attention it deserves. So that's, that's always uh, those kind of questions for me are always uh, the initial starting point for, uh, for future collaboration with institutions, just to get a sense of what, what, what the baseline is and what the needs are moving forward. Because uh, strategic planning is not easy, uh, and to do it well and to be able to then not only plan it but also implement it is our two very different skill sets, frankly. Uh, you can have a lot of great ideas. You can get them down on paper and um, put together some, some terms and, uh, that make sense and maybe uh, uh, ones that uh, you would want in a plan in terms of uh, giving it some measurable outcomes uh, to give it, make it, give it some timelines and um, make it uh, realistic and achievable. Uh, so those are, those are not those are not automatic skills that everybody has, and certainly uh, some some places like to dream. And uh, dreaming's fine, but uh, if you if you're going to be sincere about developing a plan and then implementing it and um, producing the results you're you're hoping to achieve, you really have to have the attention to detail. Uh, so not just that big picture vision, which is needed to really drive a lot of conversations but you, you really want to make sure that uh, you are um, taking the time and effort to think through what's really possible, what's really achievable, who are the people that need to be part of that conversation, because it's not always the same people. And it's uh, typically when we're talking international, we're talking about it takes a village type of, pro type of process uh, to enroll a class, but also to graduate a class. Uh, and that's the piece when I talk international strategic plans. Uh, for enrollment offices, uh, international offices, I always ask them, okay, 
Uh, we're all, we have op been operating in this enrollment management sphere for since the 80s, really, uh, and early 90s, and where it's become quite in vogue to you have um, vice president for enrollment management or vice provost, whatever it might be. That chief enrollment officer has, as as part of their task, not only the recruitment uh, and enrollment of those students, but the retention of those students, and eventually graduation rates factor into that office. And uh, enrollment management is a is really a oh, is should be a holistic approach to student life, uh, to their uh, from prospect all the way through to alumni, and that's the approach that I certainly uh, want institutions to be moving toward. Uh, it's not always achievable in the first year. Sometimes it's a two, three-year process because there are a lot of moving parts at universities. Even small colleges will have multiple offices that have responsibilities for different parts of international student life. But it's, an, it's a conversation that needs to, needs to happen and needs to happen on multiple levels within the institution. So the session that I presented here at UNLV, uh, for, with UNLV at ACRO, uh, it was one called uh, Starting at Square One internationalization at UNLV. And I'll drop the link to um, a slide share of that presentation uh, in the notes uh, in, uh, in the comment section on, our, on the different social platforms for this, uh, live, for this chat. And what, you're welcome to check those out. Um, I think what's important when I pose the question about do you have an international strategic plan is if you don't, to start thinking that way because Sometimes you need to take you take some steps back from what's uh, what's what what your day to day is like, and really, it's sometimes hard given the pandemic and stretch resources and all of that. The time to have these conversations and to involve the different players on campus that should be part of that conversation can take quite some time. It's not just going to happen overnight. Uh, I, in one conversation I'm having with an institution now, we initially were planning for May, uh, but then April or May, but the presidents and provosts who needed to be at the table for those bigger picture conversations weren't going to be available till early June. Uh, then there was a conflict there, so we're moving that to uh, perhaps co coincide with another event uh, later in the summer. But uh, this is something that if you're going to do it right, you want to make sure the right people are on the table, the decision makers. Uh, that should be around the table that can be influenced, uh, that will influence and help you implement what your vision is for internationalization on your campus. So, and again, internationalization takes a lot of different shapes and forms. Uh, some will see it only as an international student enrollment piece. Some will see it as a combination of that plus study abroad. Some will say it's no, it's institutional partnerships as well. It's also going to be internationalizing the curriculum and uh, faculty exchanges, all of that. So there are a lot of different levels to it, but where most will start is going to be on that student enrollment side. And what I always challenge my college and university uh, partners who are asking, or asking me to come in and help with developing these plans is, do you have the right people around the table? that are going to be able to not just help you devise the plan, but also implement it. Because uh, not everybody has to be in the same conversations all the way through this uh, process, uh, but certainly there needs to be a core group that help drive things forward, that, that can really make those decisions and impact and the change that's necessary. And then there's separate, a separate group of individuals that will be the implementers, that will be the worker bees. Uh, you may have roles in that yourself, depending on your position and the size of your institution, uh, to actually make those things happen. But some 
uh, there needs to be uh, multiple sets of people that will be part of that larger uh, conversation and also the implementation of the strategic plan. So what we did in our presentation was really take uh, take people back to kind of the history of um, this institution uh, and their uh, lack of intentionality when it came to international student recruitment uh, and things international in general. Uh, the focus at uh, UNLV for many years has, has been diversify. Diversity has been one of the, their core values and really represents who they are. So a uh, new president comes in, uh, energy was kind of behind moving internationalization onto that same uh, platform. So it wouldn't be just diversity, it would be international domestic diversity, it would be international diversity as well. And uh, a strategic plan, a 10-year strategic plan uh, with some very broad strokes, obviously, uh, was written in about two months and is now in the process of being implemented. So there were uh, the initial motivation driven by the provost and president, a new president who had come over from uh, Wayne State, um, Keith Whitfield, uh, who had some really great experiences there um, in his role, I think he was in provost role there, at, uh, with a, a senior international officer uh, that helped him develop um, some very concrete programs and uh, internationalization efforts. So he came in, and during the pandemic, there was a real push to, okay, we got we got to step outside, and in anticipation of this uh, demographic cliff coming up in 2025, 26, uh, there was the kind of the intentionality of, okay, we got to get serious about international. They had a, a thousand international students on campus pre-pandemic, and uh, so without even trying, really, uh, they had facilities and uh, process, some very basic processes in place that certainly were not student-friendly for internationals. But uh, that's part of the evolution of what we're trying to do in the last few months is put in place the, the kinds of um, digital presence, uh, international student-friendly content and website uh, processes that they can go through um, from an RFI to an international application, separate international application that's in development now for the next cycle to a fairly comprehensive ComFlow overview or overhaul. And there's all these different pieces, and the the goal was to grow both graduate and undergraduate uh, international enrollments, uh, and that um, that we knew that there were there were some not quick fixes, but things that we could do to make the processes go much more smoothly than they were. Uh, but there are some, still some functional things that need to be sorted through, as there are in any college campus. But we're we're in the process of putting in place the the kind of strategic elements that uh, that really make will make things uh, provide a solid foundation for things moving forward. So having that strategic plan is is something I just want to circle back to. Is is it's not just you have it or you don't. It's well we thought about it. We want to have one. Uh, but we know we, uh, there's considerable energy that's going to be required to make that happen. Uh, and a lot of different elements on your campus will need to align properly in order for that to work. So my goal when any college uh, comes calling and says, hey, we need some help organizing this, and that's, that's part of what I can do uh, is provide that uh, level of service to make sure we have the right people around the table to ask the right questions and to be pointing people in the right direction for how we can really change things and turn things around in the direction that makes most sense for your college or university. 
So I'll put the links to those plans. Um, we, and for each of the colleges that I'm working with now, we use what I've, what I've developed over the past two years uh, called um, the six P's of strategic international enrollment management. And I mention these P's fairly often here on the roundup. Uh, we talk very often about perspective and how having a global perspective is one of the most important elements to help your, get your institution aligned with the changes that are going on in the world and awareness of those changes and how other, other institutions in other countries are recruiting and how we're actually competing for the same students oftentimes. So messaging is important, um, how your processes go, how complicated you make it, uh, how, much, how well you uh, are, are able to articulate your values, uh, do you have funding in place, do you have appropriate housing and English language training and all of these other elements in addition to having great academic programs. Uh, then we build in the orientation programming, and that's the handoffs from one unit to the next and the involving on a second or third or fourth level the, the entire student experience. How are you engaging those students throughout the process? Not just in the enrollment funnel, top of the enrollment funnel till the time they get on campus, but throughout their time on campus. How are you making sure their needs are being met through student life, through housing, through academic advising, through English language, through career services eventually in the red and alumni offices? How are they engaging differently with your international students? Because Frankly, there are differences in terms of their needs, in terms of what they're, they're able to do, what they're not able to do, and how your institution responds to them in, in a very personal way and a way that involves their peers uh, at all levels, from prospect through to alumni. You need to be thinking through these issues. Uh, and that's, that's part of the perspective issue that I, I, I help uh, crystallize for a lot of institutions in terms of what's most important. So that strategic plan piece, uh, I can't overemphasize how important that is to, uh, to giving a sense of stability, a sense of permanence, and really having the hard conversations on campus about why you need to have developed plans, uh, well-articulated plans, to have um, not only the, the vision to put the plan together and to have lofty goals, but to make sure that they're properly resourced and to have that conversation about what that looks like and uh, the staffing needs that uh, as you grow populations, what it, uh, international student office needs are and what advising offices are, what English language program staffing should be at. All of these are vital conversations that need to happen. So that's uh, something that hopefully you're getting more of that in, uh, into how you develop your own programming. But if you need, need help along the way, please do be in touch and we can get you started. So question three, and this is a fun one, a future one. What conferences will you be attending this year? Obviously, we're coming live from one of those uh, that I'm attending, ACRO, here in Portland for the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers. Uh, this is primarily a domestic-focused uh, conference. Uh, it's coming because of the presentation that I'm doing with uh, the folks at UNLV. Uh, so that uh, this one is, is probably the as close to what I think the new normal will be uh, for conferences. Uh, we've, um, for international educators, obviously the um, big one is at the end of May in Denver, Colorado this year, NAPSA. First time since uh, this, uh, Washington, D.C. in 2019. So it's uh, first time in three years that uh, this conference will have met. 
Uh, and for NAFSA, it's a big deal. They have to make this one work because uh, their revenue, uh, much of their revenue each year as, a, as an organization uh, is dependent on the annual conference. And because they haven't had one for two years, uh, this is uh, in, 19, in 2020 and 2021, this is going to be a big deal for, for the organization and for the field. Uh, we, uh, we have not had, uh, as I mentioned here, uh, we have not had to, for NAFSA registration, we haven't been informed of vaccination requirements or anything like that. Um, we already know that most of, well, I think 35 to 40 percent of the attendees in the past, pre-pandemic, were from abroad, from 70 countries or more. Uh, this is a conference that can sometimes have, uh, at its peak, probably had over 10,000 10, individuals from around the world attend. But uh, we know that uh, travel is no longer easy internationally. Uh, all visitors to the U.S. and all U.S. citizens who are traveling internationally in order to enter the U.S. have to be vaccinated, fully vaccinated, uh, more than two weeks beyond their second dose. And uh, that is uh, part of the requirement for travel right now to the U.S. So any international visitors, agents, other universities, staff that would be coming will need to be fully vaccinated in order to travel. So I think uh, in terms of the expectations, we, again, I have, we haven't been told yet for what's going to happen for NAFSA, but uh, in terms of vaccination, uh, but doing something like this clear pass would be an easy way for that to, that to be done. So we'll see if they make use of that or other types of services like that. But certainly um, I would expect there'd be something, but it, they, it's, well, we're less than two months away, so it's, uh, there's nothing been made, no decisions have been made yet on that, so we'll see what, uh, what happens. Uh, what, um, what I'm, most, most people aren't expecting a full conference uh, in terms of not going to be 10,000 people there uh, this year because international travel is, is still going to be difficult. There's still going to be hesitancy, uh, and, and it's fairly expensive to travel because uh, uh, it, it can really be um, suck, a budget suck if you uh, haven't, haven't, haven't planned for this. Um, I'll be going um, as part of uh, my work with uh, different colleges. I'll be representing uh, them in some way or helping them get better connected uh, to uh, the international ed community because that's really the, the place to be uh, for in-person uh, events uh, at this one conference every year. So we'll see what develops, but it's going to be an interesting uh, interesting week in Denver. Uh, the, uh, right now the, they're saying masks will be worn in the conference. Uh, even though the city of Denver, much like many cities across the U.S., have lifted mass mandates, uh, whether or not that uh, still is in place at the end of May, we'll see. Uh, at least that's been in the initial conversation. But uh, outside of NAFSA, you're seeing also a, a return to in-person events for International ACAC uh, coming up with their annual conference uh, that'll be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in middle of June, July, and uh, University of New Mexico is uh, playing host for that. They were going to be the host in uh, summer 2020, uh, and they've, uh, last year uh, they went virtual uh, in 2020 and again in 2021, and uh, they didn't want to, uh, they've done so much work to get ready for it, and as a campus host, you really want the, the people to be on campus, and that's going to have uh, 500, uh, potentially 500 uh, college counselors, 750 uh, U.S. Uh, and other university reps from around the world that will be attending. And again, that's primarily for, or exclusively for undergraduate students, mostly 
students in international schools overseas looking to enroll in uh, universities around the world. So uh, they are going to be in person. Uh, there haven't been uh, any indications yet about mass mandates or vaccine requirements for that one. So we'll see. It's a very social conference so and very relaxed typically. So we'll see what, uh, what that looks like in July. Followed shortly after International ACAC, we have uh, the Education USA Forum, which will be in person in D.C. at the JW Marriott, and registration is now open for that one as well. So we'll see what that looks like. That's going to be a very uh, intriguing uh, conference because they're bringing, just heard yesterday, they're bringing 53 advisors, all 14 uh, REACs should be there. Uh, so that is, that's certainly going to be um, uh, a a welcome event back on the calendar as well with uh, those three conferences, NASA, International ACAC, and of course with um, the EDUSA Forum in D.C. So we'll see how those three go. Those are the next big ones coming up for international educators, so hopefully we'll see you there at those conferences. But until next time, we wish you the very best, and we hope uh, you're all safe and getting ready for a very busy summer conference season. Cheers.